you know, there was a one in the basement that was terrifying. And I'm pretty sure I know what happened to him because I'm pretty sure he followed me home. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hadley. We're two interior design editors obsessed with the paranormal. This Halloween, we're stepping away from the beautiful homes we usually write about to tell a different kind of story. From cursed cottages to abandoned estates, we're uncovering the twisted histories of America's most notorious homes. So lock your doors and leave the lights on. This is Dark House. Hello and welcome to the final week of Dark House. I'm Alyssa and I am here with my co-host Hadley and we have one last house to share with you guys. Now, usually this is the part where I would make Hadley guess which house I picked, but I accidentally spilled the beans to Hadley the other day. So she already knows that today we're talking about the S.K. Pierce Mansion in Gardner, Massachusetts. I knew one of us was going to slip eventually and tell the other person at some point. There was just no way we were going to go through this whole thing without needing to ask for a favor or something with the research, but I'm glad it was you and not me. Okay. Yeah. So like that was my B, but I also just feel like I deserve some credit because I made it three whole weeks without that happening. So that has to count for something. True. Anyways, we've been to the West Coast. We've been to the Midwest. We've been down South. So it is time that we finally go to the spookiest state in the country, Massachusetts. And personally, I feel like I saved the best for last. And I'm not just saying that. It's so haunted. I won't even be able to tell you everything that's happened there. But what I'm going to tell you will probably keep you up for like the rest of the year. I don't love the sound of that. You know it doesn't take much to give me nightmares. But also the masochist in me is like, tell me everything. Well, the funny thing about this house is like, It's different from the other ones we've talked about so far because there's not really a true crime angle. Interesting. Yeah, but at least five people did die there and their spirits are rumored to have never left. So Ken Watson, who's the current curator of the house, he says that they're all friendly ghosts. Wait, can I really quickly ask, what do you mean by curator? Like he just, he's the caretaker or he like curates it as a museum? It's not quite a museum and we'll talk later about like what's actually going on there right now. He is working on restoring the interior okay. uh, and the exterior, but like kind of really bringing those rooms back to their former glory. Okay. Yeah. So he says that they're all friendly ghosts, but hmm. the couple who owned the house from 2008 to 2015 only lived there for two years before they were legit run out by the ghosts. Mm. And there's even a book about their experience called Bones in the Basement. Okay, wait, are there actually bones in the basement? Or is it kind of what we were talking about with Toke, how like skeletons in the closet sort of proverbially? No, there were there were bones in the basement. But like, I'm telling you, that is the tip of the iceberg. So just buckle up. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's go to Gardner. So the S.K. Pierce Mansion takes up the entire corner of West Broadway and Union Street in Gardner, Massachusetts, and it's named after its original owner, Sylvester Knowlton Pierce. What a fancy name. Fancy name. He actually earned his fortune manufacturing furniture, which I felt like was fun for us, like nerd Yeah, totally. Um, And Gardner was actually nicknamed Chair City back in the 1920s because it just was such a mecca for furniture manufacturing. Interesting. And the big story about this house is that 
200 men worked around the clock for a year and a half to build this massive three-story Victorian. And when I say S.K. Pierce spared no expense, I'm not exaggerating. Like he pulled out all of the stops. When it was finally finished in 1875, like this place is just a marvel for its time. Here's a creepy factoid. The mansion is 6,661 square feet. So the only thing like keeping it from the 666 is that little one at the end. Like right away I read that and I was like, okay, great. So anyways, there are 10 bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms and 26 rooms total, including a library, formal dining room, kitchen and butler's pantry, a billiards room where SK hung out with his famous friends, P.T. Barnum, Norman Rockwell, Calvin Coolidge, just to name a few. Whoa. Yeah. There's also a ladies parlor and a summer kitchen in the basement. And then all the way upstairs, there's a widow's walk, which I thought was a little weird since Gardner is not really a coastal town, but apparently the views are stunning. That's what I was going to ask you. Cause like, I mean, I, I've been to a lot of coastal places in Massachusetts, but it's good to know that it was more central. That is weird that it has a widow walk. But it's funny. Cause when I heard widow's walk, I think the practical magic house. Yeah. Like Cape Cod. Yeah. I mean, the Practical Magic House actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the S.K. Pierce mansion with the mansard roofs and metal spikes and bay windows. But I think the Pierce mansion looks a lot more menacing, probably Mm. because right now it's painted like this dark grayish color and it has black shutters on every window. It it has more like Adam's family vibes going on. Mm. Okay. But... Regardless, you can tell that a lot of care went into the exterior craftsmanship and the interior is just no different. So because he was a furniture manufacturer, he went ham on the details. He used 16 different types of wood throughout the house and every single room has these like elaborate hand-carved moldings and big ornate doors. They had Tiffany lamps and chandeliers installed. They had gas lighting in every room. There's two cisterns in the house running water from the attic throughout the house, um, which in the late 1800s, that really wasn't a thing for most families. They even had, I think, like an early version of an intercom system. So that was kind of what you were saying about how like it was state of the art. Yeah. So he really just took his fortune and built this dream mansion. Yeah. Like I want to move in, but I bet I won't in a second. Yeah. Not by the end of my story. He barely had time to even like enjoy the fruits of his labor before tragedy struck. Here we go. Here we go. So two weeks after moving into the mansion, SK's wife, Susan Pierce, dies from a flesh-eating bacterial infection. I'm so creeped out by the word flesh-eating. I mean, it sounds like a a horror movie. So she dies, um, and that leaves SK alone with their 18-year-old son, Frank. But they're not alone for long, because two years later, he marries a 28-year-old woman named Ellen West. SK and Ellen have two sons of their own, Stuart and Edward. And when SK dies in 1888, in the house. Um, The house is left to Ellen, which was a little bit against the norm of the time. But eventually when she dies, the house does go to the three sons and they just end up fighting over it for years, literally like suing each other back and Mm. forth until the two oldest brothers finally move away. Now at this point, the youngest son, Edward Pierce, gains control of the house, but it just really doesn't go well for him. So first of all, his youngest daughter, Rachel Pierce, dies in the house, um, again, of a bacterial infection. She's two years old. So that's really, really sad. Yeah. 
And then the Great Depression hits and Edward and his wife, Bessie, are forced to turn the, the mansion into a boarding house to make ends meet. And by the time his wife dies in 1951, the house is just beginning to fall apart. And so he holds on to it for as long as he can. But finally, in 1965, he doesn't have a choice and the house is transferred out of the Pierce family for the first time since it's built. So again, Ken Watson, the home's curator, Mm -hmm. he explains that Edward was going to lose the home in back taxes. So his friend, a wealthy artist named Jay Stemmerman, steps up and is like, let me take it off your hands. Um, but after he gives up ownership of the home, he becomes a tenant hmm. in, you know, in what used to be his house. And so he... Yeah, that's awkward. Yeah, he chooses to live in an apartment in the basement and like spends his days in solitude. Hmm. So there were five confirmed deaths in the house. The first four are Pierce family members. We kind of just mentioned them, Susan, SK, Ellen, and Rachel. By the way, SK and Ellen, their wakes were held in the house. Okay. Ooh. The fifth person to die in the house was a man named Eno Sari. He lived there during the years that the mansion was a boarding house. Okay. He was a 49-year-old gardener resident and a World War II veteran. In 1963, he burned to death in the main bedroom. Mm. Most likely what happened was he was drinking and smoking at the same time in bed and the mattress caught on fire. Weird. But the weird thing is when the fire department gets there, they're like, what? Because the flames were completely contained to the bed. They never touched the walls, the floor, or the ceiling, which I think is weird. They know the house is on fire enough to call the fire department. And by the time they get there, it hasn't spread. Yeah, that's insane. And I also Super don't know what weird. the like response times were then, but I bet it was like slightly slower, right? That's crazy. Very weird. Um, that's a horrible way to die too. Right. Okay. So Jay Stemmerman, he puts at least... into the mansion before he mysteriously abandons it in 1980. Yeah. And then it it sits abandoned for the next 20 years until it sells to Mark Vaux and his fiance Suzanne in 2000 for $155,000. Okay. 2000 wasn't that long ago. So that's a crazy low price. It's a low price for a house this big. Um, yeah. I'm going to keep you, I'm going to keep you up to speed on the prices because I think they're fascinating. And this, this too, yeah. this has nothing to do with the hauntings, but I just literally can't get over it. So I have to tell you. So the Stemmerman family had the house gutted sometime in the mid eighties and they sold everything at auction. And uh-huh. while giving a tour of the house in 2006, Mark said that they sold the antique billiards table for more than double what he paid for the house. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And obviously when you leave a place to sort of deteriorate, um, even if you put in some money into it, like it's probably falling apart and it's not maintained in the way that at least like the original SK had expected it to be taken care of. But still, that's a huge... Like more than $300,000 for the pool table. Yeah. Listen, get your antiques appraised, people. Yeah. Crazy. Anyways, right after moving in, their contractors like... I've been hearing things. I think you need to get this place checked out. And it just so happens that the contractor has two nieces who are both psychics. So he brings his psychic nieces over. And they come in and they identify three spirits. Hmm. There's a little boy. There's Eno Sari, the man who died in a fire in 1963. 
And there's Maddie Cornwall, who was the young nanny who cared for the Pierce children. So apparently her spirit is still there because the mansion was the only place that ever really felt like home for her. So again, this information oh, okay. so from is, the is coming, okay. yes, from psychics to them about Maddie. But he did okay. after after they visited the house, him, he and his wife went down into like the library and checked all the records, and they were like, "Here she is, Maddie Cornwall." But it's cool to know that she was a real person and existed, and it wasn't just yeah, like made up. yeah. And that's like name is so good. But she's not there because she's stuck there. She's there because she really loves this house. They also shared that Maddie is like the hall monitor head honcho of the spirits like she keeps all the other spirits in check and she's like the protector of the house so she's kind of a big deal i like her okay yeah i like her too so after finding out about this stuff mark and suzanne like don't even really they don't even tell anybody but then something really crazy happens so there's a pizza shop across the street from the mansion. And one night while Mark is over there, he meets this man named Bill Wallace. And long story short, Mark invites Bill into the house to come on a tour. Mm-hmm. So they're doing a tour. They get up to the third floor. And all of a sudden, Bill looks like he's having a heart attack. So Bill is the like newfound friend, right? Just to, so I'm following. Bill's, in, Bill's a new okay. friend. They just met. Yeah. He's giving him a tour of the house and they're on the third floor. And all of a sudden, Bill's like having a heart attack or something. And Mark is like, what is going on? Freaking out. But Bill's not having a heart attack. He collects himself and he explains that six years before this, he died during a surgery procedure and he was revived on the <sighs> table. And when they brought him back, he could see ghosts. Oh, I just got really a lot of chills. I don't love that. I mean, good for him that he's back to life. I'm happy about that part, but... Yes. So when he came back, he can see ghosts. And this is sort of, I guess, what might happen to him when he's about to communicate with someone. So then he points to a door behind him and he goes, she knows, you know, she's here. Ah, more chills. I just... Me too. too, And I already know the story. Like I literally have chills up and down my neck. Oh, my hair is standing up. Well, wait till you hear what she told him. And by she, I mean, Maddie Cornwall communicating to Bill Wallace. So... Then he says, there are three things that she wants Mark to know. First, Mm. she doesn't like that Mark's dog roams freely around the house because her boss, SK Pierce, would have never allowed that. Second, two weeks from today, he's going to have a problem with a big yellow dog and a brunette girl. So just like (laughs) keep your dog on a short leash around your kids. What a hilarious warning. So Mark is like, well, wait a minute. How do you know I have a dog? How do you know I have a big yellow dog? Bill looks down points at the floor and goes, because I can see him in the cellar right now. Poor Mark or Bill needs to like... Uh, Both of them. If I was Mark, I'd be like, you have to leave. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I'd be like, I don't get out of my house. I'd be scared of him, honestly, even if I shouldn't be. But I'm also like, it's so cool. I want to see through people's floors. Uh, Anyways. (sighs) So the third thing is that there's something in the house that Maddie doesn't like. Bill doesn't know what it is, except that it's flat. Maybe it's a document or a piece of paper. And he knows that it's in the basement, but that's all he knows. And he's just like, you have to get rid of it. So Mark and his wife, they go searching the basement and they find all these like old mason canning jars. And one of them on the label written, like drawn on in pen, he found two Nazi swastikas. Hmm. So he's like, this is obviously the thing. What? Wait, so he didn't do like a deep clean before he moved in? I guess not. That's so creepy though. Even if it's like not in a haunted house, seeing that is deeply like offensive and I would not want to live there even if I just saw that because I'd be like, what kind of person and what kind of energy was here before me? Yeah, it's like really, really disturbing. And I think that's why Maddie, who is this like protector of the house is like 
get it out. So according to Mark, when he crossed the threshold from inside the house to outside, a breeze came out of nowhere, lifting the label off the jar, blowing it away. And I read that in Bones in the Basement and I was like, this is, this is editorialized to sound cooler. Literally, that's exactly how Mark tells the story. Crazy. I know. Wait, so did something ever happen with like the big yellow dog? The funny thing is like two weeks later, Bill called Mark and was like, you're not going to believe this. My daughter got bit by a dog. So it, the warning oh from God. Maddie was not, that second warning was not even for Mark. It was for Bill himself. Mm. Crazy. Yeah. Okay. So unfortunately, Mark and Suzanne divorced in 2006 and the house goes back on the market. And the interesting thing is that Mark was actually pretty sad to give it up, but the mansion was just too much for like one person to manage on his own. So in July 2006, they listed the house for like $500,000. But by the time it finally sold in November 2008, it went for $180,000. Again, weird with the like... I mean, they made money on their investment, but like that's a huge not very price much. drop. And this is a huge house. So very interesting. I mean, obviously, like despite all the work that Mark and Suzanne did put into the house, it was still falling apart. Like if there's a pizza joint across the street and there's, it's more like, you know, kind of, it's not the same like suburban, probably like cute, quaint downtown that it was once. So maybe it looks out of place. I don't know. But that is fascinating. So the new owners are Edwin Gonzalez and Lillian Otero. And this is the couple who was ultimately run out of the house by the ghosts. And I wish I could tell you everything that happened to them, but there's just not enough time. So if anybody listening wants to hear the whole story, definitely go read Bones in the Basement. I'm just going to give you some of the key encounters. But to preface their story, I just want to note, they didn't know the house was haunted when they bought it. And when they did figure it out, I mean, Lillian just really didn't believe in ghosts. So it just didn't face her. Did Mark Vo not like publicize this at all? Because you did mention they didn't really tell anyone. But like even in the listing, they didn't have to say, by the way. At first, they didn't tell anyone. Okay. But by 2006, he's like giving tours. But so the point is she doesn't believe in it regardless of the hype. She does not believe in it. But Edwin, he was more open to it, kind of on the fence about believing ghosts or not. But he just, he was already apprehensive about buying it in the first place because he saw it as a money pit, which it Mm. was. But Lillian was just so dead set on having it. Like she always dreamed of owning a Victorian when she was a kid growing up. So he would do anything to make her happy. So they bought it. Okay. And yeah, I mean, it, it went, it went bad pretty quick. So here we go. Okay. They bought the house in November, 2008, but the walls weren't insulated. So during the winter, the mansion is just an ice box. So they had to wait to move into it until like spring of 2009. I mean, honestly, the price tag is making sense now. There's no heating and there's no insulation. Yeah. Lillian is like obsessed with this place and she finds any excuse to go there. Like she just starts (laughs) doing projects. So she's there like every week. And now, even though they weren't going to spend the holidays there, she still wanted to decorate a little bit. So in the ladies' parlor, she put this garland on the mantle. And the garland has these sort of um, glass bulb ornaments. Mm -hmm. She comes back the next week and she finds one of the ornaments in the middle of the floor. And she's like, that's weird. How could that happen? Puts it back, doesn't think a lot about it until she comes back the next week. And it's in the middle of the floor again. This time she's not alone. She's with Edwin. She's with her sister and her nephew. 
And they're all looking at it and they're like, what the hell? And Edwin is rolling this ornament across the floor thinking like maybe the floors are uneven, but no matter what he tries, he cannot get it to roll to that spot in the middle of the floor where they keep finding it. So then what, they're like, whatever. He puts it back in the garland. Okay. They're leaving the house that day and they see the light on in the ladies parlor. And they're like, what? Like we thought we shut that off. Lillian opens the door so that she can shut the light off. And then she stops dead in her tracks because there's the ornament in the middle of the floor again. Was it just like a really fugly ornament? And, and Maddie was like, I don't like this color. I think they were like, we're here. Like this was the beginning of all of it. I just wonder what, what their point is. Okay, keep going. So another incident that happened before they even moved in, um, while Lillian was alone in the basement one day trying to build this shelf for her gardening supplies, she keeps feeling like somebody's watching her. So she turns around, but there's nothing there. There's no one in the doorway, nothing. I'm like looking over my shoulder. Like all of a sudden now I feel like someone's watching me. I know. I keep getting chills and I know the story. Then she hears something fall behind her. So she turns again to look and this time she sees a dark shadow dart across the doorway, which mm-hmm. makes no sense because all of the windows in the basement are boarded up and they're, you know, <sighs> shadows shouldn't be moving oh, where there's no Alyssa. light. I don't like that. Well, it's going to get worse. So I hope you're ready. <laughs> So she kind of just lets it go because she is a non-believer. So she's just not going to give into this stuff. But even if you're a non-believer, like, I, okay, me too, honestly. Most of the time I'm like, there's some other explanation, whether it's like I am hallucinating or it's a rat or like I would, I would be scared of like anything darting past me really fast. She's a tough nut to crack, but she does yeah, okay. crack. Okay. So um, she comes back the next week and she feels it again. She feels like something's watching her. She turns around and it's the shadow figure again, but this time it scares her. Like she jumps and it mm. slowly floats up towards the ceiling over her head. They always go to corners. Listen, no, this is right above her. And so she's like waving her hand above her head and nothing's happening. It's not changing shape. It's not moving. And she said it was so dark. She couldn't even see through it. And this is the moment that she is like, I just saw a ghost. So she gets the hell out of there Mm -hmm. immediately after. And I mean, obviously things don't get any better after they actually move in. So there is one night in particular, that was extremely rough on them. Basically, they wake up in the middle of the night to their bedroom door slamming shut so hard and so loud, it shook the entire house. So Edwin jumps up thinking like somebody is here, somebody broke in. He checks the entire house. The front door is locked. The side door is locked. There is no one there. So he gets back to the bedroom and then the closet door slowly starts to shut before it slams shut same force and same same volume as before. But this time they were awake and they saw it. So he flings this closet door open, but it's empty. <gasps> this one is super creepy. Oh, good. So <laughs> one morning, Edwin wakes up and he sees Lillian like walking around their bedroom, just really out of character. She's humming. He says she's never hummed the entire time they've been married. And he asks her like, what are you doing? And she just leaves the room and doesn't answer him. Ew, so he's like, I don't like that. Yeah, and he's like, whatever. And he goes to work for the day. But by the end of the day, he realizes like, the house is so quiet. Like, where is she? Whatever. He looks out the window and her car is still there. And he's like, so she's here, but like where? Finally, he finds her in the basement in the summer kitchen, leaning over the kiln, digging in it with a like small hand shovel, like a garden shovel. What the fuck? 
again, she's being so weird. She's in her day clothes, like her nice dress clothes, but she's covered in dirt. This sounds so straight like, out of The Haunting of Hill House, like the mother sort of slowly losing it. Well, he's just like, that. she would never do this. But again, he's like, what are you doing? And she snaps at him and she's like, leave me alone. Just let me finish. So he's like, whatever. He goes back upstairs to his office. And finally she comes upstairs and she hands him something. And she's like, look what I found. It's a pelvic bone. What the? Oh my God. And, he, and he's like, how the hell do you eat? He's like, how do you know this is a pelvic bone? Maybe like, Mark's what? yellow dog brought it downstairs like a few years ago. Yeah, I'd love I'd love if that were the case, but um, <sighs> she's like, I don't know, I just know, but I think it's a child's bone because it's small. <sighs> and they brought it to like doctors. They eventually bring it to the police. They never really find out anything about the bone, but she becomes obsessed with it. She's like, I need to know why I why I was meant to find it. And then she also she really believes that a child did die in the house, and so now she feels sympathetic towards some of these spirits. And now they're kind of taking advantage of her maternal instincts, which is not good. Yeah, because I would be really scared if all of a sudden I were acting really out of character. Like, I'd be like, what? what is inside? Like, why is this shift happening? Essentially, it sounded like she was possessed. By someone loving, hopefully. Not loving towards Edwin, I guess, if she keeps snapping at him, but... Well, it's going to happen again, and you'll find out more. So, okay. Two more things that I'll tell you that happened to them. They're pretty rough. Okay. So this, something to keep in mind about the house is like, it's really a pillar of the community. And I think people just felt like they had the liberty to just stop and talk to whoever owned it because they did this all the time. Anytime Edwin Hmm. and Lillian were outside, like unloading groceries or mowing the lawn, people would just come talk to them. All right. So multiple neighbors would stop at Edwin and Lillian's and one man comes over and he's like asking about his son and Edwin's like, oh no, we don't have kids. And he was like, okay, all right, then your nephew. And Edwin was like, mm, no, my nephew's 18 and he hasn't been here in weeks. And the guy's like a little getting, doll that like Lillian dressed up the pelvic bone and like puts it, like takes it out for like breakfast and walks and stuff as if it were her child. You wish. Now, remember I told <laughs> you that the, the two psychic nieces identified a little boy Right. I was going to ask about that, but I figured you'd get to it. So we're here now. This is him. This is the little boy. So the one guy's like asking about him. He's getting mad because he is like, I see this kid running between your windows all the time. And Edwin was like, well, what windows? And he points to the ladies parlor and the dining room. And Edwin Mm. is like, that's impossible because those two rooms are separated by a staircase and a hallway. So it's not even like I don't have a little boy. It's also like, even if I did, he couldn't do that. It's impossible to run that fast between these windows. Yes. Like it's all all of it's impossible. Then a neighbor on the other side of the house, a woman, same thing, stops them, asks about their son. And this lady too, she literally, when Edwin's like, we don't have kids, she looks around him into the backyard and he's like, what are you looking for? And she was like, kids, toys, like doesn't believe him when he says he doesn't have kids. These people probably were suspicious of them. Like, why do they keep telling us? They maybe thought they were like kidnappers or something. Well, she's like, my son sees a boy in the window all the time and he wants to play with him. And so finally Edwin's like, well, why don't you just come inside? Because clearly, like, you think I'm... Like high, like harboring children in the basement. Yeah. So she's like, okay, let me just go get my son. So she brings the son over. His name is Joshua. What? People are crazy here. Okay. I mean, I think people are just so curious about the house. And they're like, yeah. whatever invitation they get, they're taking it. So uh-huh. Joshua... Edwin asked Joshua, like, about the little boy. And Joshua says he has yellow hair, which 
according to all of the accounts that Edwin is heard up to this point, the, the boy, the spirit has yellow hair. That's such a little children's perspective to be like, instead of saying blonde, to say yeah, yellow. yellow. Yeah. He asks what the boy wants and Ed, uh, Joshua says he wants me to come play in the big hallways, but his mommy won't let him. <sighs> so anyways, they tour the house. They see that there's no boy there. But Edwin sees Joshua stop outside the house on his bike like all summer, just staring at the windows until finally he sees a moving truck in their driveway and he goes over and the mom is like, I have to get him out of here. He is not the same little boy that he used to be. I have to protect him. So the house is affecting people who don't live in it at this point. And other people are seeing the ghosts. Well, the little boy is also like thinks that he's seeing something and they have like, how do you handle that as a parent? Tell them they're not seeing it. But if he's determined that he's seeing something... Right. And he's somehow the spirit is like maybe telepathically communicating with him. Yeah. Or regardless, just that's not the right space for your kid to grow up. And if they, if that's happening to them. So I like this mother, but so she leaves the neighborhood. Yeah. So that's that. They move out. Um, This is the last thing I'm going to tell you. And in my opinion, it's by far the worst thing that happened to them. Oh God. So one day Edwin has two friends over, Derek and Bob. They're on the second floor and they see a decorative curtain move. And it's decorative. It's not in front of any windows. And they're yeah. like, whoa, did you see that? And they go to check it out. And as they get closer, Bob like keels over onto the floor as if he's been electrocuted. So they're like, let's get you to the first floor where it's warmer. So they're helping him down the stairs and Lillian comes over to help too. And when she reaches out and touches Bob's shoulder, she also looks like she gets a like a shock of electrocution. And Edwin is just like, are you okay? And all she says is, yeah, I just need to go lie down. She's just like very sluggish. She feels like she's been drugged. She gets herself to the living room couch and she kind of dozes off. And Edwin did go check on her and ask if she was going to coming up to bed. And she said she was just going to stay down there, which he said, again, is out of character because in all the years that they've been married, they never slept in separate rooms if they were sleeping in the same house. Wait, but so, okay, his friends went home. They left at this point. His friends leave he checks on her. She says she's staying downstairs on the couch. So she dozes off into this like trance-like sleep and she's having all these weird visions and she doesn't wake up until her friend Marion knocks on the door. Three days later. Wait, okay. I'm sorry. That I can't buy into. Three days later. But could she have like maybe, you know, when you're really sick with the flu or something, you wake up in a fog and then you just fall right back asleep. Could it have been that? Also, Edwin, like thanks for checking in on her once, but like maybe hospital at this point. Well, so she didn't eat. She didn't go to the bathroom. And when she wakes up, she's so weak and she's pissed at Edwin because she's like, why didn't you wake me up? Yeah. I mean, same divorce papers I would, I would serve. Well, he was under a spell for three days as well. So he woke up every morning seeing this full apparition of a woman with long, dark hair. And she's in a white nightgown and she's looking out his window crying. And apparently her like anguish was so palpable it made him cry and he Hmm. remembers kind of like going through the motions each of these days but doesn't really remember them and he doesn't know why he didn't go wake Lillian up because he loves her so much like he would have woken her up yeah well that's what I'm confused by like in terms of their regular lives like how much of an interruption was this was it like everyone in their life was like what's happening to you guys in that house well more on that later that night as soon as she gets into bed Lillian starts screaming, get her off me, get her off me. And Edwin is like, what do I do? And so she's like yelling at him again, like, push me off the bed, get her off me. So he does. And when she gets back up, she is terrified. She's crying and she's like, I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. And so in these three days, because you asked like, 
what are their friends thinking? Yeah, I would I would get a wellness check on them for sure after like two hours. Well, okay, so Marion only showed up and knocked on the door because she hadn't heard from them and she was worried. So that's yeah, of course, the friend Marion. But here's the return of Bill Wallace, the guy who could see through the floor. In these three days, Bill can tell that something's wrong. But has he ever met them or he only met Mark? He didn't know the new owners, right? He might have met them during uh, paranormal investigations that were going on at the house. Oh, okay. Again, this is like this place is like a huge pillar of the community. So people come in and out all the time. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Bill walks into the kitchen and sees Lillian sitting at the table with the woman behind her with her hand on Lillian's shoulder. And he says that the woman looks a little bit like Lillian, but older with more menacing features. And she has a really creepy smile. And so very calmly, he just says like, she's still here with you. Well, yeah, because he doesn't want to piss her off. Right. And then he also doesn't want to freak them out. But then he tells them, like, you need to get out. What's her smile? Why is she smiling like that? She sounds really, like, almost evil in a way. Like laughing at something that no one else can see. You know, when that when you see someone do that, it's like... Well, maybe she's like, I see you seeing me or whatever. <sighs> that is just a fraction of what has gone down in this house. But they had so many different paranormal investigators coming in and psychic mediums and all these different people have sort of corroborated the same like seven key ghosts. So you know that there's Maddie Cornwall, there's Enosari Mm -hmm. and the little boy, but there's also said to be a little girl who was encountered on the third floor. She's believed to be Rachel Pierce, Edward's daughter. And psychics have also picked up on SK Pierce himself. Plus, there's whatever or whoever the shadow figure in the basement is. And many psychics warned Edwin and Lillian that that entity in the basement was something different, something darker, and that it might even be holding other spirits in the house hostage. Then there's two spirits in the red room, which is just named after like the wallpaper. This is seriously like Haunting of Hill House. Even the bad room there is called the red room. There's a rumor that the house may have been a brothel at some point. But again, there's no real documentation of this. However, people believe that while the mansion was a boarding house, a female sex worker was strangled to death in that second floor bedroom, the red room, by a male client. And women have reported feeling dizzy and like difficulty breathing in this room. And many psychics have also picked up on this like arrogant, aggressive male spirit who they think could be the killer. So all of these spirits that like complete strangers are, they're not communicating with each other. They're not like swapping stories. They're coming into the house, not knowing anything. And they're all kind of receiving the same information. So I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I don't think it's just cut and dry like there are ghosts or these people are all imagining it. It's probably like a combination of the two where there's something clearly happening in the house, but then the influence it has over people's mental wellness is destructive, clearly, you know? So at that point, it's like, how do you trust yourself when you're like, because you said Lillian didn't even believe in it at first. So the fact that all of a sudden now she's like, there's no way I can deny that there is something happening, at least to me. And it's happening in this house, you know? Um, that's terrifying. I feel for her. Yeah, I so, mean, because she did become a believer by the end. Yeah, that's probably better for her sake to, like, believe that it was that once she got out, she could then, like, you know, work on healing whatever was happening. Um, but so, okay, what happened to the house after they left? Well, so Edwin and Lillian gave the key 
to their friend Marion and asked her to check on the house every week. And she actually is still the caretaker to this day. I would be like, are you kidding? After your three-day hiatus, I am not going there ever again. We can do dinner at my place. No. <laughs> um, so they kept the house for years, even after moving out, but they finally put it up for sale in April 2015. And it wasn't on the market for very long because in July 2015, a couple from New Jersey bought it sight unseen for $315,000. In 2016, they told ABC News that they planned to open the house for public historical ghost tours and even overnight stays. Kind of like Velisca. Right. And I tried to reach out to their email address on their website and I didn't hear back, but I stalked the Facebook page a little bit. And in July, they commented back to fans saying that they're just waiting on permits to pave the driveway. And Ken Watson, who's been restoring the house for the last four years, he did an interview this summer and shared that 3,000 people have already put their names on the waiting list for overnight stays once it opens. Oh my God. That's so crazy. Would you go? No, I, I really would not go. Would you? I would maybe go, but I don't think I'd sleep there or like I could stay overnight, but I'm not sleeping. Yeah. I mean, I just have no interest in like, if I want to go experience something like that um, feels like it's haunted, it's not going to be at a place where people describe like full-blown possessions and also just like it's freezing. I mean, I'm not sure if they've insulated the wall since then, but <sighs> I hope so. I hope they had a permit for that too. So one thing that I'm just kind of stuck on is the situation with the paranormal investigations. So Edwin and Lillian allowed a lot of groups to conduct investigations in the house, but as more groups would come in, they would have more people like psychics or paranormal experts in these groups pull them aside and tell them that the spirits really didn't like it. Hmm. And on top of that, apparently some of the paranormal groups were like tracking in new outside spirits and basically turning the mansion into this ghost hotel. But it's not like they were just having all these groups there for you know, for fun, they were trying to get answers about what was going on in the house and the money that they would get from the investigations they put towards restoring and renovating the house. So what I'm like wondering is if they wanted to clear the energy in the house or if they were just trying to learn more about the spirits, like how could they go about doing that without actually making it worse? Or is there just like no way? I understand the, the like desire to hear their story because that's what we were talking about last week too you know, like once you hear their story, then maybe the spirit will rest. But clearly that like, also just curiosity, you know, but obviously. Yeah. I mean, why does anybody go get like a palm reading or tarot card reading or whatever? Like you just want to know, like it's not, it doesn't, you know, it's not. You're looking for more information. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, I don't know. And then like, if the ghost didn't like paranormal investigators coming in and poking around the place, how are they going to respond if the mansion gets turned into this sort of like bed and breakfast or like a tourist attraction. But if it's yeah. not livable, which it, clearly it wasn't for Edwin and Lillian, then now what? Like, can anyone ever successfully own this home as a resident? Can it be a, like a museum open to the public? Is it neither? Do they just have to knock it down? Like, what is somebody supposed to do with a property like this with so much rich history and this, all this amazing architecture. Yeah, I honestly think that the best bet for that kind of thing is like, okay, people can come in and then get out when they want to. But for one person to like, you know, own the home and then have to live in it, it doesn't seem like suitable for living people anymore. Well, there's no way to really get the answers, but 
It is the last episode. And when we started planning the show, we kept saying like how we wanted to talk to a psychic medium. So I wanted to make sure that we got to do that. And it just so happens that in addition to being an author, Joni Mahan, who wrote Bones in the Basement, is also a medium and self-proclaimed ghost magnet. She actually used to live in Gardner, Massachusetts and has been to the mansion many times. So I'm hoping she can answer some of our lingering questions about the ghosts there. And as someone who is in the business of telling ghost stories professionally, she felt like the perfect person for our last episode. Totally. I'm excited to talk to her too. I have some questions for her, especially because I'm like, I'm curious to hear how these mediums sort of corroborate everything that they're saying that they see. So I feel like speaking directly to someone will be helpful. Yeah. And she also hosts haunted ghost walks in the town where she lives, which I feel like is our dream job. Completely. So let's go talk to her. Okay. How are you? Good, good. I'm excited. This is uh, big time for me. (laughs) Good. We're excited as well. Yeah. So we are so glad that you could join us today. And I think we can just jump right in because we have so many questions for you. But, you know, this week we were talking about the SK Pierce mansion. And one of the things that I guess like frustrated me about that story or like Edwin and Lillian's story in particular was hearing that just having all those paranormal investigators coming in and out of the house was actually making things worse and could have even been bringing more ghosts in. But if that's the case, like how could someone in their situation actually get help or, you know, bring experts in without making things worse? Yeah, that's always difficult um, because you never know whether somebody's going to actually be able to to get rid of what's in that your house or if they're just going to make things worse and stir it up. And people can pick up ghosts and they drop them off. Like sometimes locations become more haunted over time, especially these ones that are rented out for events and you got a lot of paranormal investigators coming in. If they have something attached to them, sometimes we we laugh, we call it an attachment swap because it may see somebody it likes better or maybe it just likes the location better. So they do have free will in in the fact that they can move and reattach to different people or different locations. So they're not just stationary unless something's keeping them there or unless they feel that they are stuck there. So... It's hard. I mean, you just you do you do your best. You do your research. You learn how to keep yourself protected, and you always have a backup plan. Like, if someone is metaphysically gifted and they start getting things latching onto them, they need to figure out what they're going to do to get rid of it. And I always say, you know, look for a good psychic medium or a shaman. Uh, those two have been the most effective for me. When you say attach. Um I guess this could probably have a variety of meanings, but is it sort of like um, a, a possession or do you mean something else when you say attached? Well, they just kind of, you know, I, I see them as being attached. Like usually it's the back of the neck um, somewhere along there and they just hang. <laughs> I know. <laughs> everybody, everybody listening to this podcast just touched the back of their neck, I guarantee you. Um, oh, yeah, if the hair didn't already yeah. stand up. <laughs> um, typically, if you have an attachment, it's and you're not you're not metaphysically gifted. You'll just start to feel like somebody's watching you, or sometimes you'll just get weird mood shifts. But 
people who are metaphysically gifted are usually the ones they latch onto. They're really not that interested in uh, regular people. They're more interested in people who can communicate with them or feel them. And sometimes it's just because they want to uh, experience human human experiences. And other times it's not great. You know, they want to mess with you. So... Speaking of messing with you, it seemed like some of the spirits at the SK Pierce mansion were intent on giving Edwin and Lillian a particularly hard time. I was wondering why might that be? Do you think that they were negative people when they were alive, them being the spirits, or have they somehow grown darker over time? Well, and I've experienced this in many other places as well, but when you have a mansion, a beautiful house like that, people are very possessive over it and very proud of it. And I feel like at the time of death, instead of moving on, they're like, nope, I'm not going anywhere. This is my house. They weren't negative necessarily. I'm not going to say they were ever really truly happy. I feel like they chased happiness. And, you know, it kind of goes back to that money can't buy happiness because they had so much money. So one of the things that crossed my mind reading this book, um, because at one point Edwin and Lillian, were they were getting to the edge. They were just like, do we just sell this house, get rid of it and let somebody else deal with it? And so my question to you, and I don't know if there's really an answer in the world for this, but like... You can't just keep changing hands of owners and just hoping the next one can figure it out. So, like, how can someone ever come and own this house successfully? Is there anything that you think new owners could do better or just, like, you know, to kind of make it actually inhabitable? Absolutely. And it has happened. So Bones in the Basement was written in 2015, and a lot's happened since that point. Uh, I feel like the ghosts were chasing them out of the house because they weren't doing the repairs that needed to be done. Uh, we would just go in and just, you know, it would hurt your heart to look at the deterioration that was happening in this house. And it didn't have much longer before something really bad happened. So once they finally decided to sell the house, it stayed on the market not very long before a very wealthy dentist from New Jersey picked it up. And since that point in time, they have sunk so much money into restorations. The house looks beautiful. And in turn, the haunting has turned around. So it's still haunted, but nothing negative is happening. Uh, The caretakers experience uh, certain things, like sometimes they'll see footprints in sawdust or um, they'll hear noises, um, various things. They are opening it up to investigations again, so people are getting some good responses. But nobody lives there right now, so I don't know what's going to happen. They're hoping to turn it into a bed and breakfast, which I think would be a good fit for it. But I do worry because it may go back to that attachment swap scenario we talked about earlier where people start bringing in more ghosts and then we're back to square one again even though the house looks beautiful now it's kind of cool if if you know the spirits in the home are like sticking up for it in a way of like well wait a minute we need a new siding and a new roof and so until you do that like gtfo but (laughs) i guess my question is is like um how will they respond to to guests coming in and out? Like, is that something they'll think is really cool? Because back in the day, this was like a massive, you know, mansion of a very successful man with celebrity friends. And so they're used to like guests coming in and out. Or would that be something that they're just like, get out, like this is our family home. And all they really wanted was renovation. 
I guess we'll find out. I am not sure how that's going to work out. I think it really depends on the people that come in and their intentions um, as to whether they're going to have a negative or a positive experience. I really feel like the really nasty ones are gone. Um, you know, there was a one in the basement that was terrifying. And I'm pretty sure I know what happened to him because <laughs> I'm pretty sure he followed me oh home. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wait, tell. Yeah. I want to know. <laughs> well... I had been there and I came home and all of a sudden I had a nasty ghost in my house as well. And it was giving me nightmares and I was seeing shadows rip across the room. So I contacted my shaman friend and he remotely removed it. And he said it was the dark one from the Victorian mansion. But they have not had any experiences in that basement since that point. That, not that negative. Like they would see full-blown shadow people ra- racing across the basement. And your, your hair would raise on the back of your neck when you'd walk down there. It was just terrifying to be down there. And the energy really changed down there. Of course, it also changed with the renovations because... When Edwin and Lillian were there, they had the windows in the basement boarded over, so it was a dark pit. And once the restorations began, uh, the new owners actually put bars over the windows to keep people from breaking in, but you can still see sunlight. And so now the basement is a bright, sunny place like it was when it was a new house. Um, did your shaman friend get any sense of who it was? Do you have any info on that? Yeah, I was just going to ask too, like, or historical records that kind of pointed you in a direction to put the pieces together and realize what happened to this person. Yeah, some of the uh, history is lost in time, and sometimes you just can't find anything. And we did dig. Uh, I believe that the man in the basement, the ghost in the basement, was Edward Pierce. Um, I feel like he had very low vibration because he had lost the, you know, this house that it was his father's pride and joy. He let it get so run down that he had to basically give it away uh, to someone else. But I mean, we don't really know and we probably never will know. So, you know, it's my speculation. Do you have any ideas of who the little boy might be? So I think it could be a number of things. And again, we'll never know for sure, but I think it might've been Uh, a servant's child. We keep getting information about a boy drowning in the cistern. When Edwin and Lillian bought the house, it had been opened up. So there's a doorway literally into the cistern. But back in the day, that would have been full of water and opened on the top. So I don't know. We kept getting psychic mediums and information from the ghosts themselves telling us the little boy drowned in that cistern. Maybe he dropped a toy and went to get it and couldn't get out. Um, So, but, you know, and money hides a lot of stuff, too, you know, especially back in the Victorian era. You know, if a servant's child died, she might, you know, they might be Mm -hmm. able to be paid off and keep that quiet because of his standing in the town um, would have been diminished by the fact that, you know, somebody died in his house. I don't know. It's and that's just my opinion. You know, there's a lot of people that feel that S.K. Pierce was a very upstanding man and would have never done that. Um, so I, other people think that there was a little boy that was hit by a car out in front of the house. And maybe he his soul wandered in. Uh, we've tried to cross him over. We've tried to communicate with him. He's very giggly. Um, you know, we've got his voice on EVP. Uh, you know, I have, um, I don't know hundreds of EVPs on my SoundCloud account. If anybody ever wants to go listen to them, um, you can find them on my website, com. Would you stay at the bed and breakfast? 
<laughs> I, I have stayed there. I've slept there quite a few times, uh, and it was always, uh, it was always a little bone chilling. I'll be honest. Uh, I'm supposed to be this toughest nails paranormal investigator and researcher that goes anywhere, but I have my limits. And uh, when I'm sleeping, I like to feel like I'm safe because you're very vulnerable when you close your eyes. I would uh, go to sleep and I'd leave the door open uh, because there were other people there as well in other beds. And all of a sudden I would hear footsteps coming into the hall and they would walk in and they would walk to the doorway and then they get louder and I could feel them come right to the side of the bed. And it was, I could didn't open my eyes. I could feel them standing there, like somebody's standing there staring at me. And then all of a sudden, I, I would get poked. Like, you know, you'd feel a poke on your shoulder or on your leg. And you just lay there and kind of grit your teeth. And I mean, most people probably would open their eyes. But there was a part of me that didn't want to see anything, <laughs> you know, at that point. Um, so, yeah. And that was pretty much my experience every time. I have a question that's sort of a little more like existential about houses versus hotels and bed and breakfasts. To me, it makes sense with opening something up uh, and sort of, you know, being a liminal space where you can just pass through and not really have any real commitment to a place, like whether like as a hotel guest, for example, that to me seems like it's ripe for a place of, you know, a lot of attachment swapping and what we talked about earlier. What do you think makes a house... Um, a particularly like fraught place for a haunting, whether symbolically or at, in your own experience? I think it depends on the land that it's built on and what the house meant to other people and whether they stuck around, uh, if there was a tragedy there or, you know, it was just a beloved house. Um, one of my other books that I wrote uh, more recent is another haunted house story called Hanover Haunting. And if you look at that house, it's on the cover of the book. It's a little brick ranch house. It's nothing special. Um, sits next to, or it sits on a corner next to other horse houses that look identical to it. And for whatever reason, that house ended up being insanely haunted, but the house next door, maybe not. So sometimes it's hard to know. It's just impossible to determine. Did somebody die on that property? Um, or is there a portal on that property? Which in both cases, both of these houses that I wrote about both have a portal. I feel like I have an idea in my head of what it is, but for anyone listening who like has never heard of them, could you just explain what a portal is? I think, you know, it depends on who you talk to. They're going to give you a different version. But for me, it's basically a doorway to the other side and they can pop in and out a lot easier through that doorway. And uh, I experienced it at the S.K. Pierce mansion. There was one that literally ran straight up through the house, like it started in the basement and you could feel it. Uh, I didn't don't necessarily remember feeling it on the second floor, but you could definitely feel it on the third floor as it popped through. And there was one room, like a closet where you felt it. And in the Hanover haunting house, it was the same thing. It started in the basement and crazy things happened in those locations and in the portal areas where it went through. And I stepped in the portal. I would stand right in the middle of it just to see what I felt. And you just feel almost like your head's spinning, like you're dizzy, like, you know, something's wrong with your equilibrium. It's just an unsettling feeling. That's so interesting. And it's interesting, too, that like the two houses have that in common. But speaking of which, um, I was wondering, how did you come to write the Hanover story? Like, what drew you to it? 
Well, she actually, Deanna Simpson actually contacted me and asked me if I would uh, be interested in writing the book. So at that point, I had already seen it on several of the paranormal shows. So I was well aware of the haunting and I was honored that she asked me. So I, I definitely jumped in immediately, said yes, right then on the spot. And then I had a chance to come see the house. I was on my way back from Massachusetts. I had attended a Paracon and I wasn't in the house more than five minutes when the ghosts were literally all over me. And I thought, I cannot sleep here. This is crazy. It was a, an extreme haunting, unlike anything I've ever felt. I think it was worse than the S.K. Pierce house. It was uh, just wow. some really, really powerful, powerful ghosts. And I kept having to retreat back out onto the porch. And I told Deanna, I said, I'll write your book. But my biggest priority at this point is to get rid of this haunting for you and get you out of this situation. And I kind of set forth a series of events that did eventually lead her to escape from the house. So I felt really good about that. So I become a part of my own, <laughs> my own book without meaning to. How many people did you interview for either of these books? Like, how long was your research process? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I don't even know. Probably dozens. Um, a lot of conversations. Well, Hanover Haunting, Deanna and I were on the phone constantly. And all the people that interviewed, I interviewed that investigated the house um, took some time as well. But I really wanted to get other people's takes on it. So it's not just uh, my version of what happened or the homeowner's version of what happened that you actually had researchers. But, you know, so getting, you know, people's validation and their experiences really kind of helps drive home the point that this is not just a, a, a ghost story, that this really did happen. Just a quick question about that, too. Um, have you ever run into issues where you really wanted to report on a certain home, but the homeowners or whoever was occupying it at the time was not open to it? And so you couldn't write about it? Or is there always something that can compel you and um, you'll sort of like find a workaround if that's the case? Um, well, I find that to be true with my ghost walks here in New Harmony. There are a couple locations that do not want to talk about their haunting, even though I have stories from the previous owner. And I try to respect their wishes um, to a certain extent. I mean, you know, it did happen. And I just make sure that I make it clear that it's not happening to the current owners, but the previous owners had a lot of experiences. I just try to, I try to be respectful. I don't necessarily want to, you know, promote something that the current owners don't want promoted. Yeah, that makes sense. So just backing up a little bit, because I think it's so amazing that you've, you know, made a career of telling these stories through books and through your ghost walks. Um, but I've been wondering, like, how did you get here? So could you tell us more about like, where it all started for you? Or maybe just like your first experience with the paranormal? Sure. I was born a medium, so I have some abilities, and I didn't always realize what they were, what was happening to me. I think my first experience happened when I was about six years old. We lived in a uh, log cabin out in the woods on a lake, so it was a very idyllic setup. But every night when my mother would tuck me into bed, I would start seeing shadows move, and I would start having my ears ring. And it really took me so much of my life to understand that the ear ringing was part of my metaphysical abilities. When I my ears ring, I'm hearing the sound that a ghost makes, so I'm clairaudient. And once I tune into that, I can get more information. So yeah, it's just something that's grown over the years. Uh, now, now I'm 
at a point where if something's here, I can tune into it and pretty much tell you what it is, what they want, what they look like, uh, wh- what to do at that point. Can you, in your own words, like dis- uh, define clairaudient for anybody who doesn't know what that means? Well, in Latin, clairaudient means clear hearing, and it's part of the clairs. So there's a lot of the clairs, like clair seeing is uh, clairvoyance. Uh, people see ghosts and sentient means that you feel them. So some people will feel a sensation. Uh, I have a friend who, when there's a ghost near her, her scalp crawls. So she feels like that tingling on her scalp. And over the years, she's learned to differentiate what it is based on where she feels that sensation. Like a male might be on the left or a female on the right. If it's older, it might be in the back, younger in the front. Uh, And usually it's a gateway when you have one of those sensations. And once you develop it, it often becomes stronger and maybe perhaps you'll tap into another form of abilities. You know, for me, I'm also um, clairsentient. I'm also uh, clairvoyant. So different things start coming. But I my primary ability is the clairaudience. Have you ever been in a space where someone is telling you that they don't see anything and kind of doubting your experience and making you question it? Or are you confident enough now in your abilities to um, stand firm in them without that sort of external validation? Yeah, I'm to a point where I know what I'm feeling and I know what I'm experiencing. I do run into skeptics all the time. I do ghost walks in my town and I also do host paranormal investigations. And there's usually somebody who got drug along who didn't want to come and attend and it's usually a skeptic. And I understand that. And honestly, I'm quite skeptical about a lot of things too. I don't just automatically name it paranormal. I'll try to explain why we're having these experiences. Um, Of course, you know, if there is a ghost in the room, I'm going to feel it and I'm going to know that it's there. But I don't need that skeptic in the in the room to believe it as well in order to validate what I'm feeling. Can we talk about the idea of a ghost magnet? Because like that's the name of one of your books and that one's more um, kind of autobiographical. I'd love to talk more about like what is a ghost magnet in your mind and um for a ghost magnet, it doesn't matter where you are. Probably not, right? No, I feel like uh, ghost magnets are people that uh, almost like a, a moth to a candle flame, like ghosts are drawn to them. And it depends. There's just a lot of people that have that. It, you know, you'll know if you're a ghost magnet, if you're just constantly having paranormal encounters, things reach out to you. And a location doesn't have to be old to be haunted, and nobody has to necessarily die there. They just have to be drawn there. I was listening to another interview you did, and you were talking about how like people will call you and be ask you to come to their home and check it out and see what's going on. And a lot of the times, it's just like a former homeowner who's like kind of haunting the place. So I wanted to ask, like, are there any telltale signs? that someone could tell the difference between like, this is just the former homeowner or this is something darker? I think it depends on what's happening in the home, what kind of experiences you're having. Um, If you're finding that your keys keep disappearing and reappearing somewhere where you know you didn't put them, uh, that's one thing. But if something is showing up at the foot of your bed as a dark shadow and slamming doors, uh, then it's probably something negative. I think you just kind of got to judge it by what's happening. 
And I always tell people, just make sure, just talk to them, say out loud, look, I know you're here, you don't need to do this, and you're actually starting to scare me. Can you please back off? Uh, We can share this space, but I, I can't handle what you're doing. And if that works, then chances are it's just a homeowner and they're cool with it. And they usually do back off. But if it's something darker or more negative, they're not going to back off. And that's when you need to find someone to come in and take care of it. And I don't recommend getting a paranormal team in, even though I've been involved in paranormal teams over the years. Most of them are just going to want to come in and get evidence and have an experience. They're not necessarily there to get rid of what's haunting your house, unless they have some a psychic medium with them. So, you know, do you research and find somebody who is capable of removing it and just have them come in? Um, and then stop fixating on it. That's the big thing. A lot of people that have a haunted house, when I go over, they'll show me, you know, 150 pictures they've taken. Um, and, and when you put that energy into it, you empower them. So when you start having experiences, if you don't want the haunting, you just ignore it. You just let it go. You don't let it scare you. They're not going to hurt you. Um, do you just... Acknowledge it in your mind, but don't react to it. And certainly don't pull out your camera or your paranormal gear or whatever you want to try to communicate because that just encourages them to get stronger. And then in addition to like research, because we've learned so much about how like the land really is going to dictate what's going to happen in in the house you move into. Is there anything you recommend a new homeowner do as they're like moving into a new space to kind of clear things from the start? Yeah, I think just trusting your gut instincts. I think, you know, we all have some certain level of sensitivity. If you walk into a house, um, just trust what you're feeling. If it doesn't feel right, you feel like you're being watched. If the house just doesn't feel um, like home to you, then move on to another house, no matter how good the deal is, (laughs) like we found out from the Victorian mansion. I almost felt like in the way that that the beginning of that story is told about how like Edwin didn't seem sold on it in the beginning, but Lillian was like, I really want this house. Like, do you think she was being drawn to it from from the jump, like somebody was pulling her in? Oh, absolutely. From the very beginning. I feel like it selects people that it likes, that it wants, um, and I don't know what it wants with them. You know, did it want me to write a book to tell the story? Because at the time, before I wrote the book, there were a lot of rumors and there were a lot of Uh, misinformation out there that was being passed around. And I just wanted to get all the stories on paper so that we had it um, documented. And maybe that's why it pulled me in and then it let me go when I was done with that. So, But other people, they're just pulled in and they can't seem to leave. Maybe that was their purpose. I mean, I know Marion Luoma is the current caretaker of the house and she was pulled in from the very beginning She had a dream at one point where she saw herself being the caretaker uh, while she was just visiting, being friends with them. And that's still her role. She still goes over there. And I feel like they pulled her in because they knew that she would be passionate about that location and would keep it protected, which she has done. Um, So, you know, who knows why it pulls people in? You know, it has its own. So interesting. uh, Its own reasons. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And that's why, again, that's why we investigate the paranormal, because we want to learn these answers. That just is interesting to me, too, that like partners going into this together, one of them has a weird feeling about it and the other one really is, you know, it just makes me a little more. It will make me take pause next time I'm shopping for apartments. I'll just say that. (laughs) Bring a good psychic medium with you. (laughs) Yeah, Alyssa, you're coming with me. (laughs) Yeah, I will. (laughs) Um, 
before we just wrap things up, I just wanted to make sure, Joni, that you get to tell everybody what book are you working on right now and how can they join you on one of your ghost walks? Oh, excellent. Yeah. Well, you can go to my website, which is com, and find out uh, about my ghost walks if you're in New Harmony. Uh, my next book's fiction. I have a series that I'm writing, and this the first book in the series is called Creepy Dead People, and the second book <laughs> is called Demon a la Mode. So there is a humor aspect to it, but it follows a paranormal researcher, like a, a scout who goes in for a paranormal show. And uh, she has things happen to her while she's there. So uh, this is the second book is her second location. So it'll be out um, in ebook and paperback. And I want to mention that Bones in the Basement is also on Audible. So if you like to listen versus read, the man who narrated this book actually played the role of Bill Wallace in uh, A Haunting when it was on TV. So he gives it a really good read, very creepy read. And you're still doing ghost walks, right? Oh, yeah. I I do them pretty much year-round. Started in March, and I ended in November last year. So we're in a kind of a mild climate, so southern Indiana. We can do them. Sometimes I've done them every month of the year. Uh, But if it's 14 degrees, I'm not doing one. (laughs) Hopefully Hadley and I can come out sometime and do one that would be so fun oh yeah we have we have a lot of fun we always laugh and you know i say i may not scare you but i'll definitely keep you entertained (laughs) (laughs) love that i'm like unwell in the best way (laughs) i loved talking to her no, me too. I mean, the scariest thing for me that I'm fixated on is like, can someone come check my neck for ticks and ghosts, please? Literally, I feel like there's a ghost on my neck. Like when you feel like there's a bug on you. Yeah. Well, the whole thing about portals was fascinating for me, but also I don't know if you, if this clicked for you, but when she was explaining it, I was like, isn't that what Hadley described in her childhood bedroom? I did notice, but I like am in denial about it. You're blocking it out. Okay. Yes. It was really great to hear that the current owners have been able to sort of appease the spirits. And I think it's so funny that it's like through restoring and renovating the house. Totally. I mean, it makes sense to the nanny, Maddie, like that seems totally uh, on track for her character. Right. I'm calling her a character. She's a real person, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's cool too that like there could be a ghost in the house that's here just trying to keep people respecting it because so much hard work and love and care went into building it in the first place. I guess my main questions like all go back to the original thing where it's like, why are some of the people who own the house welcomed there? And then some, it's like those spirits sounded really negative. And hearing Joni even confirm like whatever was in the basement was really, really bad is kind of like, I don't know, just especially because there wasn't a true crime element. There were obviously sad things that happened. Like it's not pleasant to die from a flesh eating bacterial disease, nor is it pleasant to like burn on your mattress. But still, it's weird that we talk about these other places where really bad stuff happened and still the ghost stories are like a little bit less, like, I don't know, sure. You know what I mean? It seems like some of the spirits here are like possessive over the house itself, which kind of, I don't know, I feel like Joni touched on it a little bit about like money and corruption and like- totally. I mean, the family, those brothers were fighting over the house for years. Like that's bad blood. Also just the idea of like, 
all of this, you know how we were talking about with Toke a few, a few weeks, I don't even, I lost track of time, but a while ago, um, we, he was talking sort of about, you know, the fall of the aristocracy and how the sort of like clinging on to a past that no longer exists because it shouldn't exist because morally it was corrupt. And it makes sense that if like that's what the ghosts were like at the time, then they're probably still carrying those values, you know? Yeah. I mean, even just down to like your dog's not allowed to run around the house, like just this strictness and this like old fashioned. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought it was crazy that Joni felt that the Hanover haunting house was more haunted than the SK Pierce mansion. Cause I'm like, who has more ghosts than SK Pierce? But also the Hanover haunting house is just this run of the mill Mm-hmm. everyday house you would never know it's haunted and I feel like that brings us back to what we were talking about in the list of like it has nothing to do with the way your house looks or you know the architecture style that it was built in like don't judge a house by its cover yeah like the symbolism of the architectural styles sure but in terms of actual hauntings they don't have real implications but I wish that we could hire Joni to like go to each of the houses that we did because obviously she went to this one but I wonder what her experiences would be there because when we talked about you know the Mercer house last week in Savannah it was that it felt more cursed but the people who own it now don't talk at all about whether there are any types of like weird things that happen that might not be from you know something natural I wonder if she would agree with that or if she would be like oh no this place is extremely haunted because if we're not hearing those stories Maybe we would from her. And same for Velisca. I'm sure she would feel something there. And probably Jean Harlow as well. No, yeah. Maybe like our next project should be like you, me, and all of the guests we've had on. And we just do a cross-country road trip to all four of the houses and just check them out. I feel like we kind of have to do that now. Yeah. Well, maybe that can be your next venture. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going with you. No, I, I'm not doing it alone. You're going. We're in this together. Okay. Okay. I'm going to be in a fugue state like Lily and I'm going to just like black out the whole time so I don't have to like really be present during the, the ghost hunts. That's fair. I can't believe it's the last episode. I know. But- I was just going to say I'm really thank you for choosing one that really sets it off on a nice like classic um, opposite of a fairy tale ending, I guess, but perfect yeah. for what we were trying to do. We had to go big for the last episode, but like, uh, what do you feel like has been your biggest takeaway out of all of this? I mean, um, I think for me, the biggest thing, there's a lot, but one of the things I think has shifted my, my belief system a little bit is like, I'm way less scared. I mean, I say that after freaking out for a solid, like however long we were just recording, but you know me, I don't really know what I believe. I'm open to the idea that ghosts are real. I'm also open to the idea that they're not and that they can be explained by other sort of like mental processes. But I definitely used to be way more terrified of the possibility of either of those things. Now I feel kind of equipped to think about them in a more like calm way, I guess. And hearing from all of these experts talk about it too, because they're not necessarily terrified, it's easier for me to feel like I can approach the topic. Um, What about you? I mean, I think it kind of comes back to so many people that we spoke with touched on this of that like ghosts are people too. And so Mm -hmm. trying to remember that they're not just like lingering in your house to scare you. Like they had a life, they had experiences as real as ours are and kind of like honoring that history and honoring these stories, especially for anybody who didn't get as much of a voice in their actual lifetime. Like it is important to tell these stories and not to think of ghosts in such a negative connotation of like, 
well, now my house is haunted and I have to leave. It's more just like, what can we learn from their stories and their past to live better lives ourselves? Yeah, completely. I really agree with all of that. And the other thing that I would just sort of like take a little step further is that so many of these stories too, they serve a purpose beyond just like deciding whether or not they're real. It's also about all of the value that like telling these stories does. It's a different way of learning about a place and kind of these like local histories that you, because you know, the domestic space tells you so much about our lives. Even when I'm writing an article for House Beautiful and it's like about the history of the kitchen layout and how it's changed, it reflects certain like political and social patterns. And the same is true when you look at a ghost story. It tells you about the most like intimate parts of people's lives from a different period that's much more humanizing than like the textbook uh, date rundown of, of when a battle was or something, you know? Yeah. A lot of people will say to me, why are you so obsessed with this topic? Or why are you always like, let's talk about something else now. This is so dark. And I'm like, no, it's actually really, I think it can be a really positive tool. It's not just about scaring. I mean, it's fun to scare each other, but it's also, you learn a lot. You really do learn a lot. And I think the biggest thing we've learned here is just that like, you can live in peace with spirits. Like it's okay. You don't have to be afraid of them. Some of them maybe. Yeah. Maybe some of them, but obviously things have happened everywhere. So you're, you can't really find a place that's, that doesn't have some sort of history that could potentially, you know, create a haunting. Right. So like, you know, figure out what happened there, do your homework and you got to give the dream home a chance, I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a legend until you experience it for yourself and then you can decide whether or not it was worth it, right? Yeah. You could always, um, you know, renovate the place. It sounds like spirits really like that. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank you to everyone who's listening for coming with us on this, you know, city hop ghost tour across the country over the past few weeks. It has been so fun. Um, A little nightmare inducing for sure, but definitely worth it. And I have to say that like, I just feel like I've started, you know, really getting into this research about all the ghost stories and haunted houses. So we're definitely not going anywhere. Our interest in this is not going anywhere. If you ever want to reach out and share your own haunted house stories, you know where to find us and we will gladly listen. Hopefully though, send them maybe before the sunset so I so I can try to sleep. It's been a journey. Hopefully we can all sleep soundly after this. I doubt that somehow. We'll see. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark House. If you're looking for even more spooky stories, head to housebeautiful.com slash darkhouse to check out some of our favorites. Or if you're totally freaked out and need a distraction, you can do what I do and look at pretty interiors to calm down. To unlock all of our exclusive home tours and get the magazine delivered right to your door, sign up for our membership program at housebeautiful.com slash join now.